0: Jonah chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, and we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Uh, and then the next week, we're going to look at the rest of Jonah chapter 1. Um, but if you uh, know anything about me, I've shared over the years some fears that I have. I've talked about my fear of snakes, I have a fear of getting killed by a shark. Um, that just freaks me out. I don't know if it's just growing up in the '80s and having like watching Jaws movies. If you put me in a body body of water more than ten feet, I'm going to think a shark's going to kill me. It doesn't matter what if I'm in a swimming pool or in a lake or anything. I'm just convinced like there's a shark tank and there's like an open hidden gate that they're going to open up and then let the shark out and it's going to eat me. So I've just had these crazy fears um, about sharks, and uh, then I have an, another fear about needles. Like if you put a needle like on this stage right now, I would be totally weirded out and I couldn't like. I don't want to like kick it off and you know I just can't look at needles. I just they just freak me out. I've developed a new fear just this summer as a 37-year-old man and I'm a little embarrassed by it. And it's a fear of trash cans. And I am terrified now of trash cans. And this happened over my family we went on a, a vacation to the beach. And where we were staying, they have one of those big industrial trash cans, like where everyone is staying in this area, they, they throw their trash. And so um, I remember going with my youngest son up to this big brown industrial trash can, and I open it up just like I would every other time I've opened a trash can. And I hear this <laughs> rattle like sound, like something was in there. And out comes, and in my mind, it was probably something really small, but in my mind, this humongous raccoon, and he jumps out at me, where his back leg just sort of catches my arm and I'm bleeding, and I will not tell you what I yelled out in front of my son. And I just remember being in complete shock, like that just, I mean, he just jumps out And it was like we caught eyes for a second. I don't know what was going on with that, but we caught eyes. He scratches me and then he runs off. And then I'm convinced, okay, I've got rabies, something's wrong. I start Googling, how do you get rabies from a raccoon? Well, saliva, but sometimes their saliva can end up on their face. You know, I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna die, and like there's no cure for rabies. I've watched The Office, you know, I know there's no cure for rabies, and so I'm going something, so I'm I'm really freaked out. And it took me like an hour to even explain what happened to my wife. It just it just shell-shocked me, you know, and so um, I have now, since even coming home, I'll go outside, honey, will you take out the trash? I'm like, yeah, you know, and I walk outside and I'm like, open it and throw it in there real fast, you know, and I'm really afraid, and even like, even the small one out there, I'm like, I've got some hesitancies, like pressing that little button and throwing a coffee cup in there, like it, it just has, it's just messed me up. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Like, I've, I've lived on this earth for 37 years, and so I have added up, if I have thrown away, if I've opened a trash can every other day all of my life, I have opened up a trash can at least 7,000 times. And I have not ever had a fear of opening a trash can until the one time I opened a trash can out of 7,000 that a raccoon comes out and almost kills me. Now I'm afraid of trash cans. Now why is that? Well, I have now a reason not to trust the trash can. Maybe that's some of us in this room this morning with our relationship with God. Most of the time when you get up in the morning, nothing bad happens most of the time. You go to work or school, you safely get back to home, your home, your your food is Provided for There's very little drama Nothing major happens But most of you in this room Can point to one day Or a period of time Where that was not the case at all Some of you may have gotten That unfortunate phone call That altered everything in your life Or one event Or a series of events That has changed everything for you And when that happens We all go into life Hesitant Fearful Hesitant to trust God. Uh, we struggle with what He might do next. We struggle with His character. We struggle with if He hears us. We struggle with if He loves us. Some of us may even struggle if He's even real. And those are very real things. Now, fortunately, we have a book, the book of Jonah, where we have a prophet who had a very similar experience with God. He didn't want to trust God. But however, what we're going to see in this book that Jonah is relentlessly pursued by God to prove that God can be trusted. And so my goal today, this morning, is for us to understand some foundational reasons why we struggle to trust God. And so if you want to follow along more uh, in this series, we do have some study guides out in the hallway. We want you to grab one of those on your way out. But this morning, I'm just going to focus on the first three verses so we can get a lot of the context, a lot of what's happening here on why Jonah struggles to trust God. So let me start in Jonah chapter 1. I'll read verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now a couple of things I want to I want us to notice a couple of things that are significant in chapter one verse one. First of all it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet Which means that he hears a message from God so that he would relay that message to God's people. And that's what a prophet was in the Old Testament. A prophet was one that God audibly spoke to to deliver a message. And so um, Jonah would have this uh, God speak to him and then he would give a prophetic word to the people of Israel. But the other thing I want to point out is it says that he is the son of Amittai. Who is Amittai? No idea, all right? No idea. It's not even that significant of, that we know who Amittai is, other than the fact that it's Jonah's dad. Now, here's why I point that out. And here's why I think that it's important that we see uh, why he's the son of someone, because it's showing you that Jonah is real. Jonah is a real person. And I point that out because there's many who believe that Jonah, the story of Jonah, is a fictitious book. And some believe it's a fictitious book because um, they believe of how unreal this story seems. And I believe that Jonah is one of the most popular Old Testament stories is because of how obscure it is. But, and you need to know that there are some uh, college professors who try to disprove, when they try to disprove Christianity, they do so by showing how the book of Jonah is scientifically impossible. It's scientifically impossible for A man to be swallowed by a huge fish and be in his belly for three days and survive. It's it's, um, scientifically impossible for God to raise up a plant in one day. Scientifically impossible. Those are all true. It is scientifically impossible for those things to happen. So in fear of protecting the scientific or natural uh, integrity of the book, some scholars try to say that Jonah wasn't a real person. Rather, they say he is a fictitious character to teach us how we shouldn't run from God. However, you cannot be biblical, biblically consistent and say that. Some will even try to go as far as to say, well, Jonah, it's really a story, it's a parable. But the problem with saying that Jonah is a parable, it's not written that way. There's names and there's dates and there's details of this book that are historically accurate and clear. It was not written in in the genre of of a parable. It's written in the genre of history or a narrative. And if it was a parable, it would sound something like this. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jonah. But it's not written that way. It says, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Furthermore, the other time that Jonah's mentioned, he's mentioned twice in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Both times in the Old Testament, he's mentioned as being the son of Amittai. And furthermore, and most importantly, Jesus... In the Gospels of um, Matthew and Luke, he mentions Jonah, and he mentions him as a historical figure. And so I want to point this out, that Jonah is real. He's a real person. And quite frankly, when we talk about, okay, if it's not scientifically possible for a man to be in the belly of a fish for three days, by the way, we're not sure if it's a whale or not, um, a belly of a fish for three days or uh, a plant to grow in just like that let us remember the whole of scripture and i don't think jonah if you get the gospel and if you understand uh the entirety of scripture jonah is like walk in the park as far as its weirdness i mean think about the creation how did god create the world um he just spoke it into existence is that scientifically possible no Moses, how does he run away from Pharaoh's army? Um, he just parts a Red Sea and he walks across it. Um, we have a guy who um, God tells Pharaoh to let my people go, or plagues from Egypt will come. There's going to be locusts, and water will turn to blood, and you have all these weird things that are happening. And then you have Lot, who in Sodom and Gomorrah, he, Lot's wife, when they're fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, she's not supposed to look back, because she looks back, she's going to turn to salt. What does she do? She looks back, she turns to salt. That's a weird story. Very odd. Very odd. Samson, he says, with the jawbone of an ass, I have struck down 1,000 men. That's not obscure. I just wanted to be able to say that. Um, <laughs> but it's weird. With a jawbone, he killed 1,000 people. 1,000 people with a jawbone. Joshua prayed. And when Joshua prayed, the sun stood still. It stopped. That's odd. That's strange. So the Bible is full of strange stories, but there's nothing weirder. Or scientifically, more scientifically impossible than the story of Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. That's weird. Jesus never sinned. He never had the terrible twos. That's weird. That's why Mary had other kids. She thought having children were easy because Jesus was the first, right? <laughs> Jesus went through puberty without sinning. He had siblings and he never fought with them as a 20 or 30 year old man he never struggled with lust not only that but he walked on water he commanded a storm to be uh, to be still he healed people he cast out demons he read people's minds and then he died on the cross but three days later he rose from the grave and I think this is the weirdest story of all but we're gathered here this morning because we believe in that story but it's a foolish story to the world. Paul says it's um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. So listen, if you want a regular old story, it's not going to display the power of God. The reason why Jonah is such an odd story is because it's not about Jonah, it's about God. It's about God and his power. And so the, the power of God can't be displayed if it's just like any other story. And it's important that we see Jonah as a real person because it just shows you how incredible God is. And because I I think also it's important that we see him as a real person because we can also relate to him. Because the story of Jonah contrasts the heart of man versus the heart of God better than most books in the Old Testament. And guess what? We're going to see that right away in verse 2. Arise this is what the Lord tells him arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me but Jonah rose and he fled to Tarshish I hate saying that word from the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish so he paid the fare and went down into uh, went into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a couple of things I want to tell you about Nineveh. It was a great city in the sense that it was massive. Jonah, later in the book of Jonah, is going to say it takes a three days walk to walk from one side to the other. Historians tell us that the walls of Nineveh, Nineveh were big enough to ride three chariots across it. Great architecture. Great culture, singers, artists, everything. This is Nineveh, massive city. The second thing I want to point out is also a wicked city, which is also true about most great cities. It was a wicked city. Nineveh was was known for being some of the cruelest people in the ancient world. Nineveh boasted in their histories about how cruel they were. And when they would conquer a city, they would literally take people and they would skin them alive. And they would take their skin and they would put it outside on the walls of Nineveh so that when people came up, they saw dead people's skin. And they would take the people that they had skinned and they would bury them alive with their head sticking up. And they would pull their tongues out of their mouth and nail them to the ground. And that's the way they would torture and kill people. And then at night, they would make them listen to Florida Georgia Line over and over again to (laughs) even add some more torture. I made that last part up. But, um, one account describes how they would even, their soldiers would impale some of them outside the city gates and they would take their victims and when they did end up killing them, they would chop their heads off and uh, build towers of heads all around the city of Nineveh, would, Nineveh communicating the message, don't mess with Nineveh. And that are, that's the people of Nineveh. That's the people that Jonah, God's prophet, was called to go to. And not only that... Nineveh's number one enemy, was their next enemy was going to be south of Nineveh, which is the Israelites, Jonah's own people. And so Jonah would have had direct problems with Nineveh. He would have known people that would have been killed by the Ninevites, that would have been persecuted by the Ninevites. And he's saying, that's the group of people, Jonah, that I want you to go to and communicate repentance. It's very similar. It's like, he's like, listen, I want you to go to Isis and tell Isis. That if they repent, I will forgive them. That's the message that we have that God is telling him. Now, imagine trusting God with this. Imagine being Jonah and hearing this message of going to these ruthless and cruel people. And this is what plays into why Jonah struggles and we struggle to trust God. Because God is not like us. And that's not the point that I want to make for just for this sermon, but it's the point that I want to make for this entire series. God is not like us. Jonah believed that God should immediately punish Nineveh for all that they have done, yet God desires to give them an opportunity to repent and an opportunity to change. And that's why God is not like us. That's why we struggle with God. I hear people say all the time, the God of the Bible is so judgmental, how dare he punish people for sin? But what happens is, when the moment when we get a little taste of evil, we cry out for vengeance, do we not? That's a good thing that God is not like us. And quite frankly, there should be a point in our life where we feel that tension that God is not like us. There should be a point in your life that where you go, um, okay, God's sort of disagreeing with me right now. And that's that's a very good thing when you feel the stark contrast between the way that you are and the way that you think versus the way that God is and the way that God thinks. And if you've never had a moment like that, there's a problem. Tim Keller says it well. He says, uh, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So true. At some point, God has to disagree with us because we are not like him furthermore we often don't know what god is up to imagine jonah feeling this weight you you want me to go to these ruthless people that have oppressed your people for all of these years and you are going to grant them out of all people to grant repentance to you're going to grant them repentance and you're not going to punish them for all of their wickedness that's crazy but here's the thing, because God's not like us, we, we often don't know what he's doing. And guess what, guys? If God did tell, show you everything that he was doing, we couldn't handle it. And I love what John Piper says. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. So true. We don't know God, what God is doing. Jonah, he didn't understand what God is doing. And this is why the book of Jonah has such a stark contrast between the heart of man and the heart of God. And this is clear of why our friend Jonah struggled with God, because God isn't like him. So what does he do? It says in verse 3 that he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice what the text says. It says that he found a ship ready to flee. He found a ship ready for Tarshish. So how ironic. I mean, this has to be the will of God, right? God's provided a ship for Jonah, it seems. It seems like this is the convenient route. Now, I want to make it clear, Jonah is in clear rebellion against God. Why? It's because he's not obeying God's word. And he disobeys God radically from the port of Uh, Joppa, where Jonah was, Nineveh would have only been 500 miles to the east. In the direction that he's going uh, to Tarshish, it's 2,500 miles, 2,000 additional miles he's willing to go to disobey God. And it's very interesting because when people want to disobey God, it's amazing the ideas that they come up with. Well, Jonah is disobeying God out of just sheer, he doesn't trust God, but also he finds another way to disobey God. He finds something that is convenient. Here's a ship that's already ready. This must be God. Maybe he's telling me not to do this. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where people are doing something that is clearly against the word of God, but they'll say something like this, but look how well it worked out for me. Let me just tell you, You have an enemy whose role is to ready the ship of your disobedience. If you want to run from God, there is always a ship that is ready for you to run from God. Always. If you want to let your eyes wander, there will always be a girl who will return your flirtations If you want out of your marriage, there is always going to be a too-good-to-be-true relationship that presents itself. If you want to gossip, there is always going to be someone who is there to listen to your gossip. If you want to uh, be in a better place to give sacrificially, there will be always something that will show up that you need to buy instead. There is always a ship to Tarshish. And this is why we need to be careful making our decisions based on opened and closed doors. I hear that all the time in Christian culture. God opened the door, so I know that's the way to go. There's always this provided way. That means God's plan. He wants me to do these things. Now, certainly there are times when God is at work and things come together, sometimes even strangely. But listen, you cannot base your life on that. Just because an opportunity arises, it doesn't automatically mean that you are being obedient. That's just not how it works. This is why we get dangerous with Christian culture. We find uh, over-spiritualized ways to run away from God. I hear in Christian culture you have two people that are dating. What happens when they want to break up? Well, the girl says, the Lord is laying it on my heart that we should break up. And that's not helpful for that dude at all because not only is he rejected by her, now he's rejected by God. So he's got two issues but it just said in this say have an honest conversation of like, hey, this ain't working. You don't ever pay for a meal. You, you don't smell really well. You don't shower. You don't have a job. Like, those are honest things to say. But no, we, we like to, like, choose the route to blame God for all of our problems so we don't have to take responsibility. I Man, the Lord just laid it on my heart, right? And some of you guys, like, you're, like, maybe if you're a Christian creepy guy and you use that to, like, go out with a girl, you say, the Lord just laid it on my heart that we should go out. Ladies, if that happens, just tell us and the elders, um, the leaders of integrity, the Lord will lay it on our fists to deal with it, okay? So, um, but we can't do that. We can't make our decisions that way. Or how about this, this little nugget that Christians often use to get out of um, obeying God? We say, well, I just have a piece about it, or I don't have a piece about it. Now, is that biblical, well, certainly in Scripture, we are commanded to have peace, but there's nowhere that peace is by means by which we make decisions. You might ask the question, well, doesn't the Bible say that he gives us a peace that passes all understanding? Yes, that is correct. But let me show you the context of that. That's actually in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is dealing with two ladies in the church, Iodia and Syntyche, and they have... Two weird names, maybe, and they're having this conflict. We don't know why they're having this conflict. Maybe between which name is weirder? I don't know. But if you start in verse two of Philippians chapter four, Paul is writing to kind of deal with this conflict. And this is what he says: I, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's like, these are believers. Let's work out this conflict. This is a difficult situation with these two ladies. We don't know what it is, but this is what he says. This is how we deal with it. Rejoice in the Lord Always. So rejoice in suffering. That's what he's saying. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, which is another way of saying God is sovereign in this. God is present with us. We have nothing to be afraid. This is why he says next. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and, listen, the peace of God Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, is this about decision making or is this about the state of mind which we are commanded to be in in the midst of suffering? It's not about decision making at all. Nowhere in there is to say, they're making a decision, and here you should have peace before you make that decision. No. It's about how we handle suffering, that we trust a God who is sovereign over all things, even in the midst of suffering. That's the peace that passes all understanding. If you've been around believers who are suffering, if you've been about believers who are sick, a believer who is dying, and they just have this peace that doesn't make sense, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. But it has nothing to do with making decisions, because... Peace in making decisions is completely and utterly temperamental. And that's why it's dangerous. Let me, let me give you some examples of that. Because sometimes you can have peace when it's actually a not... Ha- you can actually not have peace when it's actually a gift from God and a good thing. I just celebrated 12 years of being married to my wife, Jessica. And on October seventh, two 2004... I was standing there with my pastor, waiting in beautiful uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, 73 degrees in August. It was a miracle from God. Standing outside and waiting for my beautiful wife to come down the aisle where I would see her for the first time. Did I know that was a good decision? Was my wife, Jessica, she a believer in Christ? Are we together as one Do we agree? Do I love her? Am I attracted to her? Are are we, are we compatible together? All those things are true. But when I'm standing up there, you want to ask me if I had peace? No. I didn't have peace. I was nervous. I was overwhelmed. I was fearful. I was like, what's going to happen next? Am I going to be a good husband? You know, I'm going through all the emotions. And you want to fast forward a year and a half later in my life. During the spring of 2006, we found out we were pregnant. Well, mostly Jess was pregnant, but we found out that she was pregnant. <laughs> and she comes out she has this little stick. That stick has a little plus. I'm like, you got to take another one of those little sticks, right? She comes out with another one, two pluses. By the way, one plus is a positive, two pluses are like, really? I mean, it's going to happen. You want to ask me if I had peace? i have peace? We've got to do this. We've got to go this. we got to do this. we got to, you know, and I, that's, that's, I didn't have peace, but I knew it was the right decision. Well, I didn't have a decision. I knew it was right. And then you fast forward nine months later, February 3rd, 2007. My son, Finn, came into the world, and I held him in the, my arms the very first time. I was overwhelmed with joy, but you want to ask me if I had peace? No. I was like, can we put him back for like another couple months, and we get this justice emotionally, and no, no have peace. So peace is not the way that we make decisions. Peace doesn't decide on what is right or wrong. Maybe we trust God even if we don't feel like it's going to work out perfectly. Maybe we trust God even if it doesn't feel right. Maybe we just take him at his word. I do a lot of premarital counseling here at the church. And uh, I remember this couple, they came in, they wanted... Uh, to, to me to do their wedding and they wanted me to do their premarital counseling so I said uh, I always ask these questions like if you're a believer I go over the gospel and then I ask if you're cohabitating, if you're living together this couple, they, they were living together I said look, if you want me to move forward I've got to know that you're serious about your purity um, and I've, you've got to be willing to move out and live in different places they said man, I don't know about that, but it was financially and they went over all the reasons why they couldn't um, and then over time, begin to share the gospel with them, begin to walk through what purity looks like, and eventually they said, you know what, I think that's the right move. I think that's the right move. I said, look, it's going to be super hard for you. Like, your life is going to be a little difficult right now because financially, it's going to be a strain. You're going to feel this conflict and this struggle, and people are going to ask you all these questions. You're going to feel like you're crazy for doing this, and they, they did that for the next four or five months until so it was like very inconvenient for them to do that, for the next four or five months, he said, you know what? We're not, we're not struggling with purity, which, surprise, right? If you think you're going to live together and not struggle with purity, you're wrong. There is no way that you're going to be able to sleep in the same bed with somebody that is the opposite sex and something doesn't happen. And I always, like, once a year, I feel like I get this one guy that's like, well, I don't struggle with it. I can sleep over her house and nothing happens. I'm like, dude, you're totally lying or you're, something's medically wrong with you, Okay. Because that's exactly what's happening here. I mean, like with this couple, though, they said, we're, gonna, we're going to commit to this. And they did. And they said, we have grown so much spiritually and as a couple to communicate. We've not struggled with you know, having sex and falling into impurity. And then they were saying, now we feel like we're, we're ready to move forward. And so they did. And they were phenomenal moving forward. Now they're still together. They're a married couple. They've moved away. And they're serving Jesus in a, in a church right now. And It's amazing. But you want to ask them if they had peace about that moving forward? No, they wouldn't have done that. They would have said it's very convenient for us to live together. we save money for the wedding and all these things. It, it seems convenient, but what is convenient is not often what God wants you to do. God wants you to do it even when it's hard. Later on in on the next several months, we're going to send out a missionary to an unreached people group. You want to ask him? He's going to, you going to see him at the end of the service? Ask him if he has peace about it. I'm like, well, I have peace to know that God is sovereign. I have peace to know that whatever the outcome, God is good, he's just, he's loving, but this is a terrifying thing, and sometimes that's okay. So listen, don't use over-spiritual language to avoid obedience to God. Don't run. That's what Jonah did. Jonah ran because he didn't want to understand God, and at the end of chapter three, we see the reason why he didn't um, understand God was, what does it say? Why did he not go to Tarshish? It says he wanted to flee from God's presence. Good luck with that. Good luck with trying to run from God. Good luck with trying to flee from God's presence. Jonah was a prophet, so he would have been familiar with the idea that he cannot flee from God's presence. He would have been familiar with Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, when the psalmist says, Where should I go from your spirit? Where should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And this is true of the psalmist. This is true of Jonah. This is also definitely true of us. Why? Why? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and anywhere at once. And that's David's point, the psalmist's point as he writes this. This is why when we pray, we don't need to pray, God be with us. He's already here. He's already present. God, we invite you here. He's like, thanks for the invite. I was here before you got here, right? I don't need your invite. I'm already here. I'm everywhere. I'm present. And furthermore, if we're believers in Christ, we cannot run. Because if we're believers in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling work of the Spirit of God in us. There's a great poem by Francis Thomas where he talks about the relentless pursuit of God even at times when we try to run. In the poem he calls this relentless pursuit of God, he calls the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven. And I love that because that is exactly what he is. You cannot run from the hound of heaven if you're in Christ. So why did Jonah not trust God? He didn't understand God's character. He didn't understand that God would be merciful to Nineveh. He didn't understand that he couldn't escape God's relentless pursuit. So here's just a few things that I want us to consider in light of this text. Jonah rebelled against God. But notice that it wasn't, Jonah wasn't a guy who just got caught in sin. Rather, Jonah was exposed to the heart of God. And by being exposed to the heart of God, his sin was revealed. And that's not a bad thing when God does that. Some of you might get discouraged because the more you grow in Christ, the more you realize how sinful you are. And guess what? That's a good thing. That's why maturity is a process And once you become a Christian, God, if if he were to show you all of your sins and how sinful you are, our heads would explode. We couldn't handle it. However, we need the word of God like Jonah needed the word of God to expose our sin. And we need the word of God to show us the heart of God so that our sin will be exposed. And knowing the heart of God will expose us for who we really are, and knowing the heart of God causes us to trust God for who he is. And so will you do the opposite of Jonah? Will you not run, but will you take responsibility for who God is? Will you realize it's okay that you and God don't agree, but will you trust that he's God and he knows what's best and right for you? And maybe today you're struggling to trust God with something in your life, Maybe you're struggling with a decision, or a relationship, or a new stage of life. Maybe you're struggling with sin. But can I tell you that the, that you have more reasons to trust God than even Jonah did? I know God that Jonah heard the audible voice of God, but you have more because you have the cross. You live on this side of the cross, and the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus has died for you, and He's paid for your sins, which means you are positionally right and justify before God if you're in Him. Not only that, but He's given you the indwelling of His Spirit to convict you of His sin. Not only that, but He's given you the local church, other believers to help you grow in Christ and to help you trust Him. Not only that, but He's given you the full counsel of His Word from Genesis all the way to Revelation to show you what His character is so that you would know that He is and has proven to be a loving, gracious Father who can be trusted. And so, my hope this morning is that you would not run because you cannot flee from his presence. But yet, you would submit to his will, even when it's tough. That you wouldn't use over spiritualized language to get out of responsibility, but you would repent of your sins and trust him. If you're not a believer this morning, we invite you to do that. If you don't know Christ, perhaps this morning you you would confess your sins. And call upon the name of the Lord that he would be your savior and he would be your Lord. He would be your master. We can trust him this morning. God help us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for the cross. Because of the cross, we cannot flee from your presence. Because of the cross, we are sought and bought by our master, by our savior, by our Lord, and by our father. And so God... I don't know all the issues that are happening in this room, but I'm assuming that most of us here have an area of our life where we don't trust you. So Lord, will we take whatever that is in our lives and we lay it down at the foot of the cross and we would hand it over to you and say, Lord, I'm gonna trust you with this sin. I'm gonna trust you with this decision. And I'm gonna take responsibility to obey your word. Not what I want but what you want. Lord, would you do that in this room today? For those in this room who do not know you, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you open their eyes to the gospel? Would you call them to repentance and belief in you? In Jesus' good name, amen.